When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Hi, and thanks for listening to The Family Brain. I'm your host, Megan Gibson, and I just wanted to give a shout out to Otherworld Computing for sponsoring this podcast. Otherworld Computing is a company that supplies all kinds of things for your Mac, whether you want to upgrade or buy some accessories. It is a one-stop, easy-use place to go to improve your Mac. So today's episode is with guest Jillian Murphy. And Jillian Murphy hosts Food Freedom Body Love, which is a podcast about food and feeding yourself, feeding your family, uh, body awareness and body positivity. And one of the things we talk about in this episode is just how COVID-19 and the pandemic has affected how we are managing food and feeding our families and just sort of how we think about food as a way of comfort or how we think about food scarcity. And she has a lot of great insight on how people are being affected by all the things going on in our world right now as a result of the pandemic. So thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Jillian. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for talking with me today. So what I'm basically doing is having past guests that I've talked with before come back and sort of talk a little bit about how their work and what what they're seeing during this COVID-19 timeframe. And um, one of the things that I love about you is how you talk about food and families and just, I know personally when all of this hit, I turned psycho about food, like (laughs) I, in a lot of different ways, but so I, I mean, for me personally, I was like, are you going to eat that? Are you going to finish that? Are you going to eat every Cheerio in that bowl? Because we weren't sure if we were allowed to go back to the store. And so I was just kind of interested to hear what's gone on with you guys. Like what, what's your family situation been like? Um, I guess we'll just start there. What's your family situation been like so far? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'll talk about my family in a sec, but it is interesting that you say that because one of the things that I've noticed, which I've heard from friends in different businesses across the board is this very real, like 
every time I've noticed it in my practice, in my home, with the people that I talk to, every time a major change gets rolled out, like especially at the beginning when things were changing every half day, it felt like there was a new announcement here in Canada anyway. Um, it, you know, when we think about that, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is that pyramid where like at the base is just survival and it's like shelter and, and enough to eat. <laughs> and then as people feel secure with that, people are able to spiral up the pyramid into like mm-hmm. enlightenment and, you know, these higher levels of aspiration. And, um, it's just people falling down into that very base level of that hierarchy of needs because yeah. of fear and worry and food insecurity. And especially for people who've experienced that, whether it's because food insecurity has been a really real part of their lives at some point, or because their, their bodies are in a bit of um, food insecurity because of dieting, it really did pull up a lot of like really base level, kind of like primitive primal fears. So that's interesting. Um, our family, we, it's been interesting. So I obviously do this work with food. And so, you know, I would say that in general, overall in my practice, I've seen three groups of people. And the first is the one that I just described the ones that like, um, you know, it re- this has really pulled up a lot of like very big base level fears. And if they weren't in such a good place with food for whatever reason, and again, for the most part, I see sort of chronic dieters or like the uh, casualties of chronic dieting in my practice for the most part, not like, not like legitimate food insecurity. Um, But I'd say that's the first group of people. And this whole situation has really exacerbated a lot of things for them. And so we can like kind of circle back and talk about that. I feel like my family falls into the second category of people that I've seen in my practice, which is, you know, my husband never really had issues with food. I did, but I've worked through them in a really major way and feel like I'm raising children who are quite competent with food. And so if anything, um, what this situation has brought about for me and the people who I work with who are further along in their work in in working on their relationship with food and body is that they're really reaping the reward of having a more peaceful, trusting relationship with food in their body because it's okay if they have to change up the foods that they normally eat. It's okay if they can't rely on all the coping mechanisms that they used to have to manage their weight and body and fears around food, right? Like they're, they're just in a better place. And so even if food choices are off or, you know, there's some more emotional eating happening, they just know how to manage all of that. They manage it quite well. Yeah. And there's a more stable place. Right. And there's this actual like sinking in to some of the lessons that they've learned because even though a lot of us are still working from home and there's some chaoticness, there's a certain amount of like reduced external input that's happening. And so they're able to really sink into like rhythms with their family and mealtimes and sitting down to eat a little bit more often and carving out a bit more time for cooking. And so this, like, you know, the family meal, which is the center of the work of, that I do with children and families is a great thing again mm-hmm. for this group of people. Now, again, for the first group of people, it can be even more challenging, even if there's time, even if there's baking happening, because it just, it, there's this very tumultuous push and pull with food that can be going on. And it can be very hard um, when you're trying to control 
but you don't have any of your regular coping mechanisms in place, mm-hmm. you can end up in a, in a really big swinging pendulum of like trying to restrict and control food and then letting it all go, you know, and then back to restrict and control, letting it all go. And that feels like a big roller coaster for that group of people, right? Yeah. Like it's, and, and the emotional eating tends to go up in those circumstances and there's just, it, it's, it's tough. So the first group is like people who, who, kind of recognize that they've had some issues with food and they're, they've been working on it, but they're in the initial stages or people who maybe didn't realize how tumultuous their relationship with food has been. And this has pulled up some of that for them, or they've had, um, you know, they've been able to cope with the issues that they have with food or their body or weight because they've been able to exercise a certain way, eat a certain way, grocery shop a certain way. And when all of those things are stripped away, it really pulls things up. Um, Like I said, the second group, which I really feel like we fit into is just, you know, without all of the extra curricular activities in the evenings and the and the social things and the, the things that pull us in a million different directions, we've just, I think, sunk even deeper into um, just enjoying meals together and enjoying food and foods of all different kinds and definitely more baking than ever before and definitely more flour and more sugar, but also really balanced out with all kinds of really nutrient-dense foods. And it just all feels very good and very... Um, yeah, it just generally, we generally feel very good, I think, overall. And then the third category is kind of could fit into either, but I think it's just parents who are just tired of cooking and cleaning and prepping. And I would say that that is, you know, could be part of either one of the first two groups' experiences. Yeah. Um, because even though I think that overall in my family, we're doing quite well with food and we're really competent, there's definitely just, we get to a point every week where I'm just kind of done. You know, like I'm sort of out of ideas. I'm sort of tired of prepping food and then doing the dishes afterward. Yeah, it, it, the whole experience is made easier when when you, you know, if you understand the work that I do with kids and I can't remember how much we got into it, but this idea of the division of responsibility with meals, meals are generally much more pleasant when the division of responsibility is in place, which is just that parents are responsible for the what, when, and where of feeding. So grocery shopping, food prepping, getting it on the table. And then the kids are responsible for if and how much they eat. Mm-hmm. And when that's in place, meal times are just across the board a lot easier, but still, you know, kids be kids, right. <laughs> parents are parents. And um, I think that that third group um, is just all of us really, regardless of our relationship with food, can get to a point where we're just so tired of cooking and cleaning and right. I had someone giving me lip about when we were going to eat. It was a 30 minute time difference, but I need, I wanted a little extra time after dinner just to kind of like decompress. And this child was just going, going at me about the change in the time. And I was like, are you making the food? No. So (laughs) you will sit down when you are called. And it was just, I mean, it was one of those things where I, and it's funny because I'm saying, oh, it wasn't that much, but it was enough that I needed. So he needed it in the other direction. And just things like that, that we've never really had an issue with, but it's almost like there's so much more on these mealtimes because everyone is coming together and it is, it's just a different experience. Um, And for many, for many parents that I work with, you know, one of the issues is that we've all been really raised in a control model of eating and feeding, right? Like it was like the clean your plate club or Mm -hmm. you were forced to eat things or, um, you know, even as we've moved into this wellness age, you know, it's all about how do we get superfoods into kids and how do we, you know, and really the work that I do, the division of responsibility is about taking a big step back from that Mm -hmm. and understanding that children 
learn to eat the way their parents eat, the way that their adult role models eat over the course of their entire childhood. And so I just posted a quote today um, that that basically it's from Ellen Satter, who I work with closely. She's, you know, 50 years of research and writing in this field and clinical experience. And it's all about the fact that, you know, mealtimes and feeding our children and, and teaching them is all about just helping them develop a healthy relationship with mm-hmm. food and body. You know, every mealtime is not about how many peas you can force into them. You know, yeah. it's about how can I, each step of the way, encourage their curiosity and their food management skills and their interest in food and their willingness to experiment without being forced yeah. <laughs> and, and understanding that children, she calls it sneaking up on food, that children sneak up on food in lots of different ways. So they will mm-hmm. smell something and say, no, they'll chew it. They'll spit it out. They'll refuse something for six months. And then all of a sudden start eating it and eat it for the rest of their lives, you know, and, and that the best outcomes come when we have this beautiful division of responsibility where parents are deciding on mealtimes and saying, this is the schedule. This is the routine. I'm here. I'm preparing the food. I'm promising to get it on the table regularly. That's my job. Mm-hmm. And to provide you with a wide variety of foods to learn from and exper- experiment with. And your job is just to show up and then make decisions about how yeah. much you eat. And it really diffuses um, so much of the the struggle at the dinner table, mm-hmm. but it's a challenge because we tend to have all of these beliefs about like what kids should be capable of doing at the table at specific ages and stages and what they should be doing and what they need to be doing to be, to be healthy. And so parents often with the best of intentions start kind of, you know, crossing that division of responsibility mm-hmm. and getting into forcing. And I mean, I don't know about you, um, but my children have never taken very well to being forced to do anything, you know? No. Well, and it's funny because our last conversation, I guess you were the one who was telling me just about taste buds changing over time, like just developmentally, like sometimes it yeah. will not taste good and then it will change. And so my daughter, I was down in the kitchen getting lunch and I was like making myself a salad and I was like, do you want to try some of my salad? And she's like, no. And I'm like, oh, okay. She's like, remember, I don't like salad anymore. And I said, oh what changed? And she's like, you remember, you told me taste buds changed, mom. It just (laughs) like, basically like, that's all I got for you. And it's just, but I like that. I mean, we were just sort of talking about this before we started. Like, I like the power that she feels of like, I understand what my body is saying. I notice that I don't like that right now. Okay. That's it. Yeah. And I mean, and I often push like, you know, when I work with parents and, uh, they'll talk about, you know, whatever foods their child isn't eating. And I'll really push them to think about the number of foods that they refused when they were kids that they eat readily now, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. like, I can think of so many things like squash and beets and broccoli and tomatoes and olives and um, pasta of different shapes. It doesn't even make sense, right? It's the same ingredient, but kids will have interesting texture things or, Mm -hmm. um, There are just so many things that I, for a while, I went through weird phases with eggs. I refused to eat eggs for years Um, because I'd read something in a book that affected my, you know, it was one of those like developmental what eggs are and where they come from. And it just Mm -hmm. freaked me out as a kid. And I see my older one going through that right now, right? Like she ate eggs, came to the table with a big story about a book about eggs and what eggs are and kind of freaked out and won't eat them right now. And yeah, the best thing to do is just sort of 
allow them to have that power within the structure of regular meals and feeding times and know that if it's a food that they need and that is good for them, that they will, if you eat it, if you're an adult that eats it and enjoys eating it, they eventually will just come around to eating it. They just do, you know? Kids end up eating if they're not significantly interfered with, if that relationship with food is not significantly impaired, children end up eating the way that their parents do. Yeah. What, what would you say about, I mean, this is one of the struggles I've been having currently with the, the being in the house all the time is just access to food. I mean, they go in the pantry. I mean, there's crumbs that tell the, the tale of what's happened in the, in the day in the pantry. But um, how much do you suggest intervening in terms of like snacks and what kind of things there? I mean, because we have people that love chips and I'm like, I love chips. Chips are delicious. Uh, but like, if that's something that you're going for all the time, like, how do you, how do you manage that? What, what I'll tell you what I've been doing is that's not really healthy to be having for breakfast. Like, why don't you grab a handful with your lunch or something like that? But I don't know. I don't want to be. No, that sounds, that sounds good. Like I, you know, the beauty, like a lot of times when people hear me talk about the division of responsibility, one of their first things is this fear of like, what's going to happen when they give their child a little bit of control at the dinner table. But what I try to always remind them that the division of responsibility gives parents all of the control. In fact, much more control than many parents take when it comes to making decisions about what foods are, are, are available at different points in the day. Right. And I'm, so I just remind them that like part of the division of responsibility is parents setting up a structure for feeding. And, you know, I'm saying this, while also just remembering that I'm a human and I'm a mom and I break the rules. I, you know, we have a structure which occasionally gets broken and I'm not mercenary about the rules, if that makes sense. Like we have a structure where there's breakfast, a couple of hours later, there's a snack, there's lunch, a couple of hours later, there's a snack, there's dinner. And then usually there's a little something before bed. Right. And, but sometimes the rules get broken. Like if we're going to have a really late dinner, sometimes there's a second snack. So I'm not you know, I understand that sometimes we have to bend the rules and we have to make the day work for us. But the bottom line is my kids want to push for food too, if they, you know, at any point of the day. And there are lots of kids um, that developmentally are just not prepared or ready to manage themselves around an all day open buffet, Mm -hmm. right? Like they're not going to make great choices. They're not totally tuned into their body all the time. And so that structure is incredibly important, I will say, when I'm working with families and there's an eating or feeding issue, like a child is really resistant to food or really preoccupied with food. But it's also just a generally great rule of thumb in the home. Like if you are eating breakfast and lunch and dinner and snacks, then there really shouldn't be a lot of necessity for eating in between. Now, again, I'm not mercenary about this. If the kids have been like out on the trampoline for hours and playing and running around the backyard or whatever, if they come in and they're, or they're just hungry for whatever reason, if they're really hungry and I really believe them that they're genuinely hungry, gen, uh, genuinely hungry, I'll be like, okay, sure. I'll, I'll pull up another snack. But again, I'm always in charge of that. So, um, yeah, so we just really stick with that structure Um, we try to provide ample opportunity for lots of kinds of food. So we're not like, you know, even though I know that we as parents are in control, I'm not like, oh, we're in control. So we're only ever going to feed you rice cakes and Mm -hmm. oat milk. You know what I mean? Like we give them a nice wide, they've got yummy breakfasts. They're able to give some input when we, when we buy groceries and when we make the meal plans, because my kids are older, they're like nine and 11. So they have 
ideas. I'm always, you know, within the division of responsibility, Ellen Satter always says, we consider children without catering to them. And so like, so for example, the last two nights I've served dinners that were really casserole actually even the past three, because like we had lasagna, which again, for my kids, even though they're pasta lovers, for one of them, it's a little too casserole Do you know what I mean? Like it's too mixed together. Mm-hmm. And then I served these broccoli Parmesan fritters, which were delicious, but again, very like mixed up and cooked. And then last night I served a lentil casserole. And so tonight I was going to do these lazy cabbage rolls, which is basically like another casserole. Right. And I thought, Oh, I can't do this to them again. I'm just aware they didn't complain very much. I just, you know, I just noticed them eating a little less than usual. And so tonight I just was like, you know what, let's move the Friday night plan to tonight and I'm going to make nachos. Mm -hmm. Like I'm considering them, right? Like I don't, I don't feel the need to cater every single meal around them. Um, but I always make sure which is part of the division of responsibility that there's safe food on the table for kids. So even if we're pushing them to like eat a broccoli Parmesan fritter, there's also like some chopped up vegetables or salad that I know that they like. There's some rice or baguette or there's something safe for them. Right. Right. Um, something that they're familiar with. And then I'm always kind of like, I've got my eye on, you know, considering them. And so, you know, if your kids are into chips, I think serving them with lunch or a snack, a couple of times a week is just like perfect way to incorporate them. Right. And it also, what's beautiful about that is it takes all of the power out of the chips, right? Mm -hmm. It's like chips aren't just something you get on Saturday night when you watch a movie. If there's something that you occasionally get with like a sandwich at lunchtime or a snack at the end, you know, before supper, they just become a regular food that don't, that, that will stop causing a lot of like preoccupation. Um, but yeah, that doesn't mean that you have to serve them for breakfast, right? You can create that healthy relationship with chips without feeling the need to ever serve them for breakfast or feeling like kids need to have access to them 24-7. Well, so when you so we have a pantry, which is where all the food goes. What about kids who kind of go in and just keep grabbing? Like, do you hide the food? Do you just tell them that's not the expectation? Yeah. For me, I just, I just set a hard line with it. I, and again, I'm a human. I'm sure I don't come down on them every single time that it happens, Mm -hmm. but we, we did take a really firm line for a long time. And every now and then I'll, um, realize that they're sneaking something and we'll just talk about it and I'll be like, this isn't what we do, right? Like we, we eat at snack and meal times and so far they've been pretty good about it. I haven't had a lot of pushback again, they're nine and 11. So they, and, and with the fact that we have regular meal and snack times, um, I feel really confident that it's a, it's, it's a, not a need that they have, you know? So occasionally if I catch one of them sneaking, I'll be like, Oh shoot, it's like three and we have lunch at 12 and you're probably hungry and I haven't really gotten snacks together. So I'll be like, okay, let's just add to whatever you grabbed out of the pantry and we'll turn it into a snack. But other times if they're just grabbing, I'm like, no, because part of, part of the, you know, part of getting them in the proper state, especially for mealtimes is making sure that they haven't been eating all day long. Right. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that they're well-fed, you know, kids are these interesting beasts where if they're too hungry, things can be just as bad as if they're too full. Right. And so the snack and mealtimes are a really beautiful way to make sure that they're in prime states when they show up to meals to actually be curious about food and try food and be motivated to eat food, um, without being overly hungry. Um, 
yeah, I can't remember where I was going with that, but you know, again, if I, if I was worried that they were genuinely hungry, um, you know, I would just turn it into a proper sit down snack. I'd be like, okay, let's just eat then. If you're hungry, let's eat. Um, but otherwise I feel like I really rely on that snack and mealtime to know that for the most part, it's not a need. It's just, yeah. it's just picking. And so, you know, again, if we remember that feeding our kids isn't just about micronutrients. It's also about learning how to manage themselves with food and some of the social expectations around food and um, behaviors. Like there's so many things wrapped up in nourishing our children, so many bigger lessons about living with other people. And, you know, that snack and mealtime also plays into that. And it sort of helps, you know, helps kids understand the rhythm and routine of the day as well. So. I I hope I answered that well, but basically I'm not mercenary about it, but snack and mealtimes are a really good way to make sure kids are well prepped for meals so that they're interested and um, also helps you set boundaries as a parent. So you don't feel like you have to be giving in all day long. Right. Yeah. Well, and what would you say to parents who are like, everything is just so confusing right now anyway, because there is, there's not, doesn't feel like any day has any cadence to it with homeschooling and all this stuff. Like, I don't know. I feel like some days I'm like, okay, let's, I'm, I'm really good about like it's breakfast time, it's, but somebody's on a call or somebody's doing something and then breakfast gets mixed up. I mean, what would you say to families for right now about like, how to be kind of compassionate with yourself in terms of the process. Yeah. I mean, gentleness for sure. Right. Like, you know, I, I, you know, when I said we really rely on it, we do really rely on it. And then we also break the rules occasionally because Mm -hmm. it's just, we, we have those days absolutely as well, where my husband's on calls all day. I'm on calls all day. um, And what just happened? You know, we have breakfast and then we have dinner together and then I'm not a hundred percent sure. For me, the structure of meals and snacks has always been something that does give cadence to the day and actually provides a really great, healthy, flexible backbone to the day. And the more that we've, because we've pretty much always done it um, with different variations based on our schedules, the kids are pretty well attuned to it. So I can sort of say, like, if I know we're going to have a really busy day, I'll sort of say like, you know, here's for a snack, Mm-hmm. Kind of here's what lunch is sort of going to be and and second snack. And they're not perfect. They do they do a little bit of their own thing, but they also really enjoy that structure, right? Like as with all kinds of all aspects of parenting, a certain amount of structure it feels like a lot of safety for children. And so parents making some of those decisions is very helpful, even if it's ahead of time or afterward, and even if it's not executed perfectly. So I still try to rely on it. So I, I mean, I posted something maybe last week where I was sort of joking, but I said, I set up feeding stations for the kids to get through the workday. And I wasn't really kidding. Like we had breakfast together. Um, I knew that I was going to be busy all morning until about one. And so I basically just put together two plates worth of snacks because I knew we'd be having a really big period of time between breakfast and lunch. And I sort of set them on the counter and sort of said, when you guys are ready around this time, here's a snack and here's another one for later. So they didn't need to be like raccoons in the cupboard, squirreling, trying to figure mm-hmm. out what to eat. And I also wasn't really there to enforce it. Um, obviously the older kids get, the easier that is with younger children. It's just a bit of chaos right now. I totally get it. You know, it's just a little bit of chaos. And as with all rules, you know, sometimes we just have to break them for our own sanity and that's, that's life. Like that's no big deal. 
Yeah. I think my kids are in the raccoon stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they're like, well, what do we have? I'm like, I mean, you have eyes, go look, you know? And, and so, because sometimes what's tricky is that everybody likes something a little bit different. I've been doing, you know, I, I'm here for breakfast right now. If you want something like come on down and then at lunch and at dinner, it's always the same. And I probably could do better at, yeah, I mean, but most of the time at lunch, it's about the same too. Again, if kids are doing well, if whatever you're doing is, is working well, I think as long as you're making an effort to eat together at least once a day, I'm, I like am two thumbs up. You know what I mean? Like awesome. Everything else is, is, um, icing as far as I'm concerned, but the structure is very helpful for people who are really struggling. If there's all of these questions about like, you know, when and how, and this kid's I, I, you know, parents who are wondering if their children are eating enough or they're eating too much or they're whatever. When those problems or those questions start to come up, the only real way to figure out the solution or the answer is to actually put the structure in place and then allow kids to manage themselves at meal and snack times, right? Like, um, weight is not a very good indicator of that. Um, uh, unless it's, you know, unless if weight's shifting in really major directions, we often worry about, but again, what I'm really concerned about in those circumstances is the feeding relationship. So what's going on because weight, whether it's dropping or it's accelerating, um, can be a sign of lots of different stressful things that could be happening for a child. But it, it's not just about food, right? It's like what's going on. Um, but yeah, so for parents who are in really tough positions with their kids, then I get much more firm on the, on the schedule. But for people who are like, yeah, we're kind of doing pretty well. Like when, you know, if I describe it and they're like, yeah, we're close. And they feel like their kids are doing pretty well within it. I'm like, well, that's great. You know, like each family has to make, make it work for them and make it work for, you know, their children and their lifestyles and all of that. Um, but it's just something really good to fall back on when you're worried that things are falling apart. Right. Yes. No, I agree. And it's funny because I remember after I spoke with you the last time, I was much better about like, even on the weekends, like during the week, it sort of seems to work out. The weekends seem to get a little mushy. Yeah. Uh, But just making sure like, did everybody have lunch today? You know? Yeah. We'll just be in their directions and grabbing at things and- and then all of a sudden they have a meltdown and you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? And that happens for us too, all the time. Yeah. You know, like, again, like I said, especially in the afternoons, for some reason, I'll let it go a little bit long. And then one of the kids is having a meltdown and I'm like, what's going mm-hmm. on? I'm like, oh, right. They're hungry. It's been three and a half hours yes. eat, or, you know, whatever that is. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I think the structure, it's a difficult thing to put into place if the parent is currently struggling with food and has always been struggling with food, but for those who are, um, you know, doing fairly well, it can be a real comfort in these, in these times where there isn't a lot of structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who are struggling, I'm, I just always sort of say like, you know, consistently nourishing ourselves is one of the best possible things we can do. So instead of fighting food, really working to like feed ourselves, feed our children, just sitting down at the table, whether it's craft dinner or takeout pizza or a homemade meal, it doesn't matter. You know, most of the benefit comes from sitting down and eating together at the table without a lot of distraction and trying to do that once a day is an amazing goal. You know, I mean, I would say before all of this, we were probably eating as a family, maybe once a week. Yeah. Because of sports and activities and my husband's work schedule. Like I wanted to feed the kids earlier because then they had an activity. And by the time he got home, it was just kind of all mishmash. And now we're doing it every day. 
And it is, it has been really nice. I will say, sometimes I'm like, can we have silent dinner? Can we all sit here and just <laughs> silently enjoy our meal? Because it's sometimes it's like, just a lot happening. But it has been really nice. And I mean, I think we're almost kind of getting better at it. Like we're learning what what's going to be okay and maybe funny. Sometimes it's like the jokes can be off kilter too. Like somebody's ribbing somebody a little too hard or, you know, and it was a joke. Yeah. We are all yeah. doing it and then it just uh, tips over. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's been a big change for us. And I mean, it's one of those things we're hoping to continue afterwards. We feel the same. Like we, we dinner together quite a bit. And I'll just say from like a, if there are feeding issues and we're using snacks and meal times to kind of work on feeding issues, even just one adult sitting with the kids is considered like a family, a family meal, like eating together, you know, because a lot of families do struggle to have both adults at the table with the kids <laughs> because schedules are so hectic. But even for us, you know, we, my husband's schedule and my schedule tends to be that we're able to have dinner together, maybe four nights of the week, sometimes five, but usually I'd say four, uh, but even then to get to activities, it would be so rushed. Like I'm either rushing to make it or we're rushing after we eat to, to like wrap things up and get out the door. And even though this has been a really tough, challenging time in lots of ways, one of the things that we've really loved is just like relaxing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I can, I can actually enjoy preparing a meal and getting it yeah. on the table. And I don't love it every night, like I said. <laughs> right, right. Um, but several nights of the week, I really do love it. And I have the time to love it and I have the time to enjoy it. And then we have the time to eat it together and then the time to sort of relax a little afterwards and clean up in a lazy kind of way. And, and Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just, that part's been really nice. It's been really good. Um, one of the things that I've been noticing too, and I've heard this from other people is just, I think we almost don't realize how integral food is to our lives. Like we're eating all the time. I mean, we're eating yeah. all. And I just think that it's so easy to not pay as because you're rushing. Like here, take this. Uh, da, da. You know, it's like, we're getting it done. I mean, obviously we're alive, but we're getting the food part done. But I just think that it's, it's almost a neat, like return to like, oh, okay, this is important. What, what do we want to do? Like, I just have heard more people talking about well, what do we want to have for dinner? What should we get? What should we like, what do you like, you know? And I don't, I don't remember having those kinds of conversations before. I think a lot of the conversations around food in our more modern culture tends to be around like fast dinners, quick dinners, easy. Mm-hmm. And don't, and again, I, I just, I posted something this week about quick lunches and, and not putting too much pressure on yourself, you know, when it comes to making lunches that again, the most important thing is just sitting down and eating and trying to eat with our children as often as possible. Cause that's how they learn. But I do agree that like, food has become almost thought of as too much as of an afterthought or a convenience mm-hmm. or a side thing. And we forget that, yeah, feeding our family is work. Like there's a little bit of effort that needs to go into it because a it's, it's a, a lot. lot of effort. It's a um, lot. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. Uh, I, I'm downplaying it. It's a lot yeah. of effort to feed mm-hmm. our families and to raise kids who are competent eaters. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a thing, right? Yeah. It's just like, there are aspects of having a family and raising kids that's work, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a thing. And it's not a big deal if we take shortcuts and try to make things easier sometimes. But I do think that there's been a really beautiful return to like the importance of feeding mm-hmm. ourselves and our kids and like 
um, for those of us that have the capacity for that or the, the privilege to be able to worry about that, you know, it's like, we get to look at it from, look at it in a new way, you know, which is like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is, this is good. This is something that's good for us. It's not just like, how do I shove food into kids as quickly as possible on the way to whatever activity and Mm -hmm. remembering that like, you know, the family meal in particular, um, has been shown to have so many positive, um, like such a positive impact on children. The outcomes are so amazing across the board from better grades to better social skills, to more resistant to drug use, better sexual activity as teenagers, more confidence. Like the, just the results are really kind of incredible and it isn't predicated on super happy family meals all the time or like, you know, everybody being happy and getting along. It's just, it's quite literally about the structure and the routine of sitting down together. And, and again, it's not also not dependent on perfect meals on the table Mm -hmm. or like perfect foods on the table. It's just about that routine and that rhythm of like sitting down and eating together. And, you know, Ellen Satter writes about this. I've read about it in other family books. I was recently just listening to um, Lisa Demore's book, uh, untangled about raising teenage daughters and she talks about it. Right. And she talks about it again, not as a nutritionist or a naturopath or a doctor, um, a medical doctor, or, uh, she's really talking about it from the perspective of a therapist, like raising confident girls. And she was sort of questioning, like, do do the meals, she was sort of joking, do the meals have to be perfect? And does the relationship with the parents have to be really good? Is that what it is? And she was like, no, that's really not what it is. When she pulled apart all of the, all of the factors, it's really just sitting down together over and over again. And so, you know, if there's anything that we can pull out of this moving forward, it's remembering that even though sometimes it's work and hard, sitting down together can be, can feel really good. And even when it doesn't always feel really good and it's just work, there's real, there's, there are very real positive benefits to doing it. Even if you don't see it on the daily. Right away. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I've also been thinking a little bit about this is sort of switching gears, but thinking a little bit about how um, I have never felt. So my mom's parents were in the depression. So she's like a child of the depression, right? And like just the saving of things and the keeping of things. And it's interesting, like I, I felt a, a shift in this. This this was like right at the beginning of the pandemic when I was like, are we going to have enough kind of thing? But I, I mean, it makes sense, this, this history of food scarcity and how it does put an imprint on people. Um, and even just between my husband and I having different experiences growing up, like how, what our response was to it. And he ends up being very like, he wants to get the bunker full, you know, for, for worst case scenario. And um, I don't know, it's just been an interesting process to see how how people in my family have responded, people I know have responded, and everybody's been sort of doing it in different ways. And I like, um, I don't know, it seems like we're coming to a better place of compassion for what the things are that people do struggle with, whether it's from food scarcity or from, you know, difficulties in childhood or whatever it is, like that we're, we're, when it comes to food, when it comes to other things, we're sort of having a better I don't know, just understanding of what somebody might, where somebody might be coming from. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, so far things where I'm, where I live here in Kingston, just outside of Toronto, um, things have been pretty 
good. Like the, we're definitely under lockdown. Everybody's towing the line, you know, we're social distancing. Um, and yet we haven't had a lot of cases. And so the fear after the first couple of weeks really settled down, but there's definitely a very disconcerting feeling that I had, um, when you get to the grocery store and you can't buy flour mm-hmm. and you have to like wait in line. I waited in line, I think at two different grocery stores one day, I had a small handful of things that I needed. I just couldn't get them at one grocery store. I couldn't get them at the second grocery store. And there's supposed to be, yeah, like this very disconcerting feeling. And you can only imagine if that was amplified a hundred times, if there was right. no flour or sugar or butter or cream for like five years or something in a lifetime what that leaves you with and, and where some of the, like, it gives, it gives me, I think it gives a lot of people a lot of compassion for where this control model in some ways has come from. Yeah. That we're, that we're, that we're fighting back against a little bit right now, you know, as Mm -hmm. we, you know, those peas might be coveted peas that you, I mean, what do you mean you're going to throw them away? Like, yeah. 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 Um, and the other thing, which I'm always, aware of, but I, I wonder, I feel like I see it being a little bit more people being a little bit more thoughtful just about food waste. Right. So I feel like we often make, try to make a meal plan a, because it helps us feed the family with a little bit less work and less effort, but B well, B because it helps us grocery shop and keep the budget down. Cause we could just spend inf- infinitely and C because, you know, when we make a meal plan and we buy the groceries for the meal plan. And when I say meal plan, I just mean like a general loose idea of what we're going to eat for dinner every night of the week or four or five nights of the week. Um, We waste a lot less than if we just go into the grocery store and just buy and like, we'll see what we end up doing. And, you know, food waste is a really big issue. And you start to be more aware of that when getting to the grocery store is harder, when it's more work, when foods may not be available when it might be harder to get things. And so I think that there's a really real like financial and environmental benefit to thinking a little bit more about that. You know? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's been, it's been helpful. It just kind of helps. I don't know, I guess helps me have more compassion for the other generations and just other circumstances. And totally. I, I do think you're smart to point out like, it's, it's a luxury to be thinking about, oh, when I go to the grocery store and I, I can't get this or I can't get that. I mean, there are many people that struggle with that all the time. All the time. Food scarcity, all the time. Not having fresh food available. And I'm kind of hoping that this brings up that conversation in, in other ways, you know, like just, I don't know how, I don't know, but you know, just that, that this might be how some communities feel all the time, not having access to food. Right. Like food yeah. deserts or even just households. I don't know what the numbers are where you are, but in, in Canada, I think it's something like one in eight families struggles with some level of food insecurity. And for a, a country that's moderately socialized, like we, we take care of our people medically. We take, we try to do, we try to do a good, that is a big number to me. And that's one of the things that, um, you know, my mom helps out, uh, at a breakfast program at a school in the, in the village where she lives on the East coast of Canada. And like, there's some kids that eat breakfast and lunch in this program every day. Like, this is one of the things that really keeps me up at night. When I think about this whole situation that we're in right now, like what's happening for those people right now, what's happening yeah. for those families um, where it's not just about their relationship with food. It's like legitimately about whether or not they have money for food and if they have access to food and, and what's happening for kids in those households, you know, like those are the things that, that really keep me up. And I, again, 
because I happen to live in a city where the virus is not, you know, we haven't had a huge surge. So have had time to think about or worry about other things, but um, yeah, tons more compassion and more interest in, you know, how can we, how can we improve the situation? Yeah. How can we do better with, yeah. Well, it's, this is a weird thing to bring up, but did you ever, you heard about the Tiger King thing? Oh, well, well, like the documentary. Yes. 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 It's like a train wreck that I can't. It's such a train wreck. He was saying that they would always go to Walmart because anytime anybody touched any of their meat, they had to get rid of it. And like, how wouldn't, so they gave it to the animals. I don't know if you remember that part, but I just thinking like, there are, I mean, animals need food too. I understand that, but there are families that could maybe benefit from that policy, right? Like where, okay, we're going to put this in a separate place and donate it or allow free access or whatever it is, instead of just throwing in the trash can. You know, yeah, I think, I think, um, I was a part of a couple of different programs here in Kingston where I was helping out young girls and, um, that were really high risk with body image and eating habits. And it's really, it's a really complicated, complex conversation because, um, you know, even, and I totally agree with you. I think that there's a certain amount, like certain policies that are in place for actually like liability mm-hmm. that don't, that could be a lot more lax if we were putting humans first, like people first and like environmental things first. And like, as opposed to just, just liability, you know, right. no, that's um, point. but, but also there's all of these layers of like the dignity of people who require food and, you know, cause there's food banks where it's like, everybody's like, Oh, it should just be so easy to drop off X, Y, Z. And it's not because they're trying to just also make sure that like whatever they're taking is something that the people would actually want to eat and, and preserving that dignity. And then also being aware of like, it's an, it's another really interesting thing when we talk about nutrition and food and feeding people and getting food to people, because I worked with a, an organization here that gets fresh food to high risk individuals and families. But what's really interesting is even when that food was boxed up and delivered to the door, it wasn't necessarily eaten. And just remembering like as we go through this and as those of us who have resources struggle to cook and prepare regularly and as we recognize how much work it is to do that, that there are people out there that even when that food, even when that butternut squash is delivered to their door or the kale or the spinach, like you also need the right knives and the right pots and the right pans and you need the emotional bandwidth to figure out how to cook this thing and how to eat it and to have the, have the, the bandwidth to care about putting in that time and that effort. And like, there are so many layers to food insecurity and to feeding people and to, you know, getting quote unquote healthy foods on the table that aren't considered when we're sometimes in, you know, even just like the wellness sphere, you know, and I say that as a naturopath where, you know, superfoods and certain kinds of foods are like really highly idealized. And a lot of people aren't recognizing you know, what a classist conversation that really is, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and I do agree that as we're at home and we see how challenging it can be, even when we're in homes that have resources, um, you can only imagine what it would be like to be in, in other people's situations and how many more barriers there are to just getting, getting those kinds of foods on the table, you know? And it's not just about awareness. You know, I, there's not one, at-risk youth that I worked with that didn't know vegetables were good for them. Mm-hmm. 
right? Or didn't know that eating kale might be good. Now, definitely there was some disparity in education. I don't want to say there's no, there's none, but, um, they know that vegetables are good for them. There's just sometimes many, many, many barriers to getting those foods into them beyond just, you know, whether they can afford them or not. Yeah. I mean, well, it sort of reminds me what you were saying about a child's development over a lifetime. And so to just show up with a box of kale is kind of like, okay, there's a lot of steps that were missed in that process. And just, if you haven't had accessibility, you're like, what, what's this for? What, exactly. This exactly. Me full. What, what are yeah. you doing? Yeah. 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 Interesting. No, it's, it's, and that's what I, I appreciate about you is like, there's just so many layers to it all. And I think you're good at speaking to the complexity of it. You know, it's not just like here, here's what you do. It's, there's a lot of people bringing in their histories and their circumstances and all of that. It's not black and white. It's not so simple. One of the things that I love about the model that I work with is that we can meet people wherever they are with whatever they're eating. Right. Mm -hmm. And so whatever the relationship with food and body is, whatever the financial resources are, wherever they are, we can meet them and we can get a good outcome. Mm -hmm. So we're not saying you're only going to have a good outcome if kale is on the table every night, Mm -hmm. right? If you can, if you can afford, if you can afford kale, if you know how to prepare it, if you're good with it, then we can spiral sort of up that pyramid of the hierarchy of, of, you know, needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but also the hierarchy of food needs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you, if you have the, the resources and the space and the time, then we can work with you, you know, and it, at higher levels of that pyramid. Right. But if not, we can get some great outcomes. We, you know, we can help families raise competent eaters and be competent eaters with wherever they are. Yeah. So that's also a really beautiful thing about it. You know, it's not, it's not, um, it's not only for one certain group of people. And it also, yeah. it also makes lots of space. I also love to talk about the fact that it makes lots of space for different like um, social and cultural beliefs about food. Mm-hmm. Cause yes. one of the things that we sometimes forget when we're pushing specific food agendas or specific kinds of foods as healthy is that we forget that there are whole cultures that eat differently, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they have people that live really long, good, healthy lives as well. And so um, just, you know, we don't want to negate somebody's cultural beliefs or history with food in order to try to make them fit into, you know, a healthy eating plan that we currently in this moment in time think is healthy, (laughs) which which realistically changes every decade, you know? Yes. Um, One of the things I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about is just your new series about um, working with, with people in session and just how that's going. That's pretty cool to be able to hear yeah. Be like if you were uh, you're gonna be in in you know one of these sessions. Yeah, I I love it. So it came. It just sort of came about because as people were going through as the initial weeks of this pandemic were happening, people were in. I could tell that there are many people who were in a really bad place with food and their body and weight and health, but were also not in a place where they were they could reach out to like do therapy necessarily around, like, that's what I do, right? Like I work with parents, I work with professionals and I work with adults who are struggling with weight, food, eating, you know, that's my job. And yet on a certain level, unless it's life threatening, it's kind of like, you know, it's a problem that's like higher up that hierarchy of needs. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when people fall down to the bottom, it's not the first thing that they're thinking about doing to reach out and spend money on therapy, to work on their relationship with their body. 
or mm-hmm. food. It's just like, I'll just get by, you know, I can't think about that. So I could tell that there were a lot of people who were struggling, who weren't reaching out. Um, and so I was kind of like, you know, I sort of was like letting things go, seeing how it would go, how things were going to roll out. And then I just sort of got into that mode of like what, once I got through the, the initial weeks for ourselves as a family and making through all the chaos and the people that were already on my roster. And I sort of had, had the time to take a deep breath and kind of thought about what could I do. And I thought, well, if I did sessions, like you can learn so much from listening to someone working through their own issues. And it's mm-hmm. definitely, it definitely doesn't fix everything, but it really is incredibly helpful to listen to. And so I just put out a call and I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then I got a ton of responses and, um, I recorded five episodes. I've got a few more that I'm going to record in the next couple of weeks. And it's just been sort of amazing. The feedback has been so incredible. It was interesting for me because I kind of jumped in with both feet, like, Oh, this will be great. What a great thing to do. And then as soon as I was about to record the first one, I was like, Oh my God, I'm recording myself working with people. Mm-hmm. How's this going to go? And it's, yeah. and it's a tough situation because and they're putting all their stuff on, on to be recorded on the table. It's yeah. all kind of like, except for there was one woman that I'd worked with a few years ago, but it was really with her children, not with her. But for the most part, they're people that I haven't worked with. So I don't fully know. I've got a bit of an idea, but I don't mm-hmm. really know what they're bringing to the table. It's very of the moment. Um, and I'm trying to work with them, but then also make sure for anyone listening in that I'm rounding out the story. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's an interesting process, but it's been pretty great this week. Um, I'm going to be talking with a woman who had gastric sleeve surgery and lost weight, but is still really struggling with food and body. Um, last week it was with a mom of four who was on a real roller coaster with weight and food throughout her pregnancies and postpartum periods super interesting. And the week before that was a a gym owner, nutritionist, CrossFitter who was really struggling to let go of dieting, but you Mm. know, all the layers of how it was going to affect, you know, not just her body, but also her business, her livelihood, her, you know, how she's perceived Mm -hmm. uh, as being good at her job or not good at her job. Right. So that was really good. So yeah, so there it's, really valuable. I think, I think it's really informative. It's not perfect, but it's, it's a, it's a pretty cool thing to tune into, to listen to. Yeah. I'm excited to listen more. I started listening a little bit and it's funny. I was listening to it down in the kitchen. This is in the same conversation with my daughter, um, talking about taste buds changing. She said, what are you listening to? And I was like, oh, well, she helps people. if like, you know, if about food and, um, sometimes people don't like the way their bodies look, but you know how, and I was telling her how she always says, that everybody's just made different and that's just how it's supposed to be. And I I said, and I hope you always feel that way, but if you ever have trouble, there's people that can help you with that. And she's like, nah, I'll be good. I mean, so, you know, but it's nice for her to know that if you do struggle, there are people that can help you, you know, because it's hard to get outside of the culture, cultural messages. You know, I mean, if you look at social media, you can see what our culture is feeling about quarantine and weight gain and, you know, oh yeah, not funny jokes. You know, going not around. funny jokes about bodies or like you know, Adele just posted a photo today of extreme weight loss and like people are going nuts over it. It's like it's gonna like break the internet today. Mm-hmm. And and 
maybe it's all been very healthy or maybe not. The reality is we probably won't know for several years and nobody really knows. Like again, this episode with the gastric sleeve surgery is very interesting because people often think that weight loss indicates that someone's doing really well and they're in a really great place with themselves and food and body. And often the people who are in that position think that they are. And it's not till a few years later that we start to hear hear the real story or the full story. And right. you know, I don't want to say that weight loss is impossible and for someone to do it or to do it from a really good place, but often it comes from not such a good place, you know, and, um, to celebrate, like, I know that I, I know that she went through a divorce not that long ago. And I think the weight loss initially started with divorce, right? Probably anxiety and worry Mm -hmm. and stress. And, and who knows, you know, what I often see is a situation like that happens. And then a person is so congratulated and so appreciated and considered so much more valuable and better for having gone through something stressful and happened to have lost weight because of it, that it accelerates that. And, And what we know is that, um, people can choose to try to eat better and move better. And that's a choice, but the falling from that place to a place of more disordered eating is often not a choice. It's something yeah. that, that happens as a byproduct of, of um, a lot of different forces at work. And so could it be that Adele's weight loss is all just really great? Yeah, it could be, or it might not be, you know, right. and, it, and we'll, we'll only know through time. It's just such a tough thing to see how how much congratulations she's getting when we, in reality, we have no idea what she's done to shift her body. And to me, that's the more interesting, like the part about like how our society responds to things of that nature and the things we celebrate and then things we don't celebrate. And right. Like there's plenty of women who I see really getting better and in a much healthier, better place with their bodies who gain weight. Mm -hmm. They're never congratulated. No one's ever like, well done, you know? And so what are we really congratulating? We're not really congratulating health and well being because if we were, you wouldn't just do it for weight loss. You would do it when someone was actually behaving well for themselves. And you can't know that from an image. You can't I will know. say, I feel like this uh, internet, Instagram in particular, has been good insofar as I feel like there's more images of like people doing like before and after and like the before picture might look like thinner or whatever, but like they, then they describe the struggles. And I think people are starting to be a little bit more transparent with that kind of thing. And I think if you, if you look for it, it's there. And yeah. I just love seeing that. Like, I love seeing people's honesty about it. And um, yeah, there's a real movement of like body positivity and body acceptance and people, you know, I think it's still, I think when you're in the bubble, like I'm in the bubble. So I just think it's everywhere. I'm mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah. People, you know, and then I accidentally take a step out of the bubble for whatever reason, like researching something for somebody I'm working with or whatever. Yeah. I'm like, Whoa, the diet industry like is TikTok. very big. TikTok. Yeah. Very big. My son um, showed me how to use TikTok and I was like, Oh wow. These are not the people. Cause it's all kind of random. The stuff that gets thrown totally, at you. And it's, totally. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm just like, Whoa, this messaging is still very strong. And like, we're still in the really early days of like mm-hmm. understanding weight and health and, and body acceptance and body positivity. Yeah. Um, but if you want to immerse yourself, you absolutely can, you can make that choice. Right. And it's a really good choice to make. Well, I have one last question and that's just what, is there any sort of like touchstone, like practice that you have been doing for yourself to sort of help, help yourself stay balanced and feel as sane as possible during this weird time? 
Um, a little bit of movement every day, even if it's just a walk around the block, like a little bit of fresh air. I know that's not possible for everyone, but for where, where we are, we can absolutely get out for like a, a walk or a jog or something every day. So a little bit of movement. And then I don't know, do you know Wim Hof? I don't know if you know Wim no. Hof. He's like the Iceman, but he does this really cool breathe, these really cool breathing exercises oh, and yes. hours. Uh, he, there was a, I watched that goop on Netflix. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he has a little app and my husband and I, I think we were both just feeling really overwhelmed when this all happened. Our jobs were kind of overwhelming and the kids. And, um, and so we started, we downloaded his app and started doing the breathing exercise. It really like oh. settles down your nervous system. Pretty short, quick, easy. Okay. Meditation wasn't working for me because my brain was too busy. So the breathing was really helpful. Yeah. And then the cold showers and like, you know, I'm a naturopath. So I studied hydrotherapy in school and like, that's always been kind of on my radar. It wasn't such a weird foreign concept, but it's been really interesting to start using cold water and cold showers. And at first it's so uncomfortable. And now it's, I almost feel like my shower is not complete without it. And it's very good for like the immune system. And, you know, again, endorphins, like I get this like endorphin release, like a rush, you know? Um, And I always love exploring ways to feel better in my body and to manage things that aren't always tied to food and exercise. Right. I like, so I think I like his approach because it's very like, you know, breathing and cold and, you know, um, it's been pretty grounding throughout this. I don't, I don't know how much of it will continue when this is all over, but it really definitely helped us, you know, get through that first sort of six or eight weeks. Cool. That's a fun, I mean, that's, what's been kind of interesting. I think we've all had to kind of dig deep in our, like our, our toolkit for what helps us, you know, because it's, because it's such challenging times. It's like, okay, that's not working. What else is there? You know? um, Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I could talk with you all day, but thanks for having me again. And I will be listening to your episodes coming out too. I'm excited to hear more. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Jillian. Thanks for listening to this episode of the family brain. If you'd like to learn more about Jillian Murphy, check out her podcast. It's great food, freedom, body, love. And if you want to join the family brain community, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, online, Family Brain Podcast. And what would be a huge help is if you would rate and review the show. It helps other people find the show and helps share the information with more people in the world. So thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.